Welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast. This episode is part three of our Sherlock Holmes adventure, The Mystery of the Murdered Bow, something that we have written and put together in time for the 2023 annual boat race between Oxford and Cambridge. If you have listened to parts one and two, then you will know that Holmes has been summoned from his lair in 221B Baker Street by Lestrade. There has been a case of self-murder or suicide at one of the Cambridge colleges. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, shame on you. Go and do it now. And then when you've done that, come back and listen to part three of The Mystery of the Murdered Bow. I suppose that most who read this will have some impression of Cambridge. There is little I can add to it, except to say that King's is a fair specimen of the colleges of that venerable place. We pulled to a halt outside its front of somewhat worn earlstone fronting the main street, into which two or three other colleges look also. Over the gateway, the windows were visible at the examination room. Entering, we passed the porter's lodge, where the business is to put down the time the inhabitants of the college come and go, and to keep any tradesmen, stray dogs and bad characters out of the college generally. I had no doubt that Holmes would wish to speak to that gentleman at some stage. Lestrade briskly walked us into the quadrangle, a solemn and sleepy sort of place with its gables and old mullioned windows and green lawn. I noted, as I'm sure Holmes did, that one side was occupied by the hall and the chapel, with the provost's house taking up the half of the other side. The rest was fairly evenly distributed to staircases leading to six or eight sets of rooms, inhabited by the undergraduates or the occasional tutor or fellow. I expected Lestrade to lead us to one of these and to the scene which we were investigating. To my surprise, however, he walked us straight through and into the inner quad, an altogether less imposing place. Lestrade strode quickly to a constable guarding the entrance immediately in front of us. Anyone come or go? No, sir, replied the constable. The porter and the provost are by the young gentleman's rooms, and everyone else in the squad has been asked to remain indoors until told otherwise. Good, said Lestrade. It'll get out, but if we can keep it until at least his family have been told, I'd be grateful. Come, Lestrade, you know as well as I that for all your precautions it will be all round the college by now and around the town by lunchtime. Well... We'd best get a move on and get it all wrapped up then, Mr. Holmes, replied Lestrade with some asperity. He led us up three flights of stairs to what are commonly called the garrets, the room at the top of the building. We were met by two men, one tall and old and the other a portly red-faced man, as well as two further constables. "Uh, Mr. Holmes, said the tall older man, stepping forward and offering his hand. Thank you for coming. I am Provost Oakes. I am the senior academic administrator of the college, what might be called the master in other places. This is Mr. Potter, the porter. He noticed that uh, Mr. Martin had not attended chapel nor responded to a message sent to him from Mr. Pittman regarding the boat club. Even though Mr. Martin was sporting his egg, Mr. Potter forced the door and, uh, well, that's when we raised the alarm. Provost Oakes gestured towards the open door. Beyond was a perfectly normal garret set of rooms, perhaps 18 by 12 for the main living area, 
uh, with a bedroom off of it of about 12 by 8 or thereabouts. There was a fireplace, a chimney breast, above which a series of prints had been carefully hung. There was room for a brace of small chairs by the fire and a small settle against the far wall. The windows looked out onto college tiles and chimney pots. There was a rug by the fire on which an occasional table with decanters and glasses stood and a small square of carpet in the rough centre of the room on which stood a heavy mahogany desk. Other than that, the room was completely empty apart from the young man slumped across the desk. There was a revolver by his left hand and a pool of blood, now congealed, that ran from his shattered forehead down the desk and pooled on the floor below. Like I said, Mr. Holmes, said Lestrade, not unkindly. Suicide. I have yet to form a conclusion, Lestrade, replied Holmes, taking in the scene before him. If one does so before one is in possession of all of the salient facts, then the human brain makes one's facts fit the predetermined conclusion. Innocent men have been hung because of that peculiarity of human psychology. There'll be no one hung for this said Lestrade lugubriously. It's suicide. That's your conclusion, is it? said Holmes. I don't see how it could be any other. Gentleman was signed in by his porter at 11.15pm. No visitors. Gentleman did not appear for chapel. Door was found to be locked from the inside. Porters forced it. Gentleman was found inside with his brains blown out. A revolver to hand. Windows are too small for anyone to have it away on their toes after the fact, Mr. Holmes. It's a suicide. It's unfortunate, but there it is. But, began Provost Stokes, Mr. Martin had no reason to. Holmes held up his hands. Were both doors closed? Rooms of the older sort at Cambridge have two sets of doors, an inner and an outer. The former a more normal affair and the latter, the outer, a more massive slab of oak. This is usually folded back against the outside wall. The convention is that if one wanted to be undisturbed, say because you were studying or in a tutorial, you closed the outer, sporting the oak. Both were closed, sir, said Mr. Potter, speaking for the first time, as Provost Oaks noted. And you were the person who discovered Mr. Martin, said Holmes. I was, sir. Mr. Martin always attended Martin Chapel, evening two, Although it's generally accepted that attendance at either is quite enough, Mr. Pittman sent word for him, sir, when he failed to shout at the boathouse. The boathouse? queried Holmes. Uh, yes, sir. Mr. Martin rode for the college. It's the boat race in a month, sir, and every session is counted on. He's well liked around the college, sir, rowing notwithstanding. Very good, said Holmes. Go on. Well, uh, if it had been anyone else, sir, I might have suspected him of having a morning head. But bar the usual bread and beer from the buttery, Mr. Martin is a most abstemious man. When he didn't answer to Mr. Pittman's messenger, well, I, I forced the door. It had been bolted from the inside, sir. I had to jemmy it. And, uh, well, th there he was, sir, exactly as you see him now. Very good, repeated Holmes, his face keenly alive. And when was that? Perhaps about a quarter to nine, sir. And we've been here before one, thanks to the wonders of the modern railway, smiled Holmes thinly. Has it been attended throughout? Barring the porter returning to the lodge to call for help, yes, interjected Lestrade. Either the porter, the local constable, or myself have been here. And you've been over the room, Lestrade? We have, Mr. Holmes, but we've left it as we found it.
I very much doubt that, replied Holmes. Still, you won't mind if I take a look myself, will you? There was a time when I had found Holmes's examination of a scene surprising and alarming, involving as it did him scouring every inch in front of him with great avidity, with little care for his person, his station, or his clothing. So it was no surprise to see him literally crawl on his hands and knees over the floor, examining it minutely, his breath coming in tense, hissing gasps. Ruined, he muttered in disgust. I'll wager the world and his dog has been through here since that poor unfortunate soul was discovered, whether in a professional capacity or simply to gawp. If there was ever anything to see here that might have given us some clue, it's been overlaid by the tramping of other feet. Watson, uh, yes, Holmes, tell me what you see. Much the same as you, Holmes, I said, entering. Single gunshot wound to the head, death would have been instantaneous. A bullet was found in the wall beyond, noted Lestrade. Webley, we've uh, matched it to the pistol. One shot fired. And uh, you can see where the plaster has given way under Potter's iron, I added, pointing. His bed hasn't been slept in, Watson, or it's been made, but we know that no bedder could have got in to make it. Do you know, Watson, that most people who take their own lives do so between midnight and four in the morning? What would you put the time of death as? I lifted Mr. Martin's right hand. It fell back when I released it. Well, uh, the blood is clotted, but that's of no matter. That begins to occur within fifteen minutes, but his body is still limp, which means either he's been dead less than four hours, or he's been dead more than eight. Very good, Watson, very good, replied Holmes. So either he's been dead since around eight this morning, or he's been dead since last night. Uh, Mr. Potter, has anyone reported hearing a shot this morning? Uh, no, sir. Well, he's been dead since last night, then, said Holmes, his face looking keen. He turned his attention from Mr. Martin's body to the dimensions of the room. Would I be correct in thinking, Mr. Oak, that this wall between the living quarters and the bedroom is a supporting wall of the college? Uh, I, uh, said Mr. Oak, looking momentarily nonplussed. I, uh, Mr. Potter stepped in, replying. Uh, yes, sir, it is. If you look out of the window, you can see the apse running down to the buttress between the tiles. And yet the inner wall ends here by the window. Do you see, Watson? I nodded. I watched Holmes crouch under the window and begin running his fingers across this section of wall. As he reached the column of the fireplace, he gave a satisfied cry. To my amazement, the whole section of wall swung back from the fireplace out on hinges, revealing a priest's hole, if I'm not mistaken. It was small. Not much more than a cubby hole hollowed out in the space between the laths and the horsehair plaster and the stone of the outer wall. What might have held a man sitting at a pinch was now occupied by a small standing wine rack and a few odds and ends. We did find it, Mr. Holmes, said Lestrade complacently. We aren't always the flatfoots you make us out to be. Well, one to you, Lestrade, replied Holmes good-naturedly. Oxford and Cambridge go back to the Conqueror in one form or another, so they've seen all of Britain's history since then, at least, if not before, and not all of it has been pleasant. Uh, this college was finished, if I'm not mistaken, by Henry VIII in an attempt to shore up his position when he was looking to procure both air and gold. I'd be surprised if there aren't many more of these nooks and crannies hidden about, Provost. Uh, yes, replied Provost Oakes. I sensed a certain relief that he'd been able to contribute something to what must have been a most distressing morning for him. We, uh, we are, I'm sure, aware of most of them. Uh, although we don't encourage it, some of the college members use them to store clothes or wine. 
as it looks as if Mr. Martin did. What I don't understand there is where Mr. Martin acquired the revolver. He does not shoot that I know of. But Holmes was already on his hands and knees and ferreting around in the dust at the back of the hall. And what have we here? Holmes held up a button. Looks like the brass button of a waistcoat, I said. Probably someone, some student, has probably stored clothes in here previously and it's not been noticed. Possibly, possibly, murmured Holmes, examining it. He turned his attention to the priest hall, examining the dust minutely as well as the cramped space behind the wall. Uh, Watson, uh, do me a favour, see if I can... And without further words, and to the astonishment of Provost Oak and Mr. Potter, Holmes wriggled into the space, sliding one leg behind the wine rack and another in front of it. Intuiting his meaning, I closed the wall behind him. With it shut, you would never know that there was a man behind it. And uh, this is what you saw when you entered the room, Mr. Porter, called Holmes's disembodied voice. Uh, I did, sir. Very good. Let me out, Watson. I opened the door and Holmes slid out, looking flushed and dishevelled. You see, even with the wine rack there, it's possible to fit in. You'd be bent double and damned uncomfortable, but it's possible. Just. What does it mean, Mr. Holmes? said Lestrade. Perhaps something, perhaps nothing, replied Holmes. He turned to Provost Oak. I will need to see all of Mr. Martin's associates, please. His tutors, his friends, his intimates. Anyone who knew him. Mr. Holmes, you can't be thinking, began Lestrade. Holmes turned to the unfortunate inspector. I am thinking, Lestrade, of how odd it is that an apparently well-liked, studious young member of this college, from a good solid background, with no history of fast or loose behaviour, whom everyone I have talked to since arriving here assures me was always smiling, polite and cheerful, suddenly shoots himself behind a locked door, leaving no note or intimation as to why. I am only the amateur detective here, Lestrade, and yet I find myself thinking that, at the same time as I find myself wondering. Why the professional policeman is not. End of part three. Well now, we have a young man dead in a college room in Cambridge. Holmes is on the scene, Lestrade is on the scene, the provost is on the scene. Mr. Potter the porter is on the scene. There's some isomorphic naming if you've never seen it before. Lestrade thinks it's a suicide. Holmes is not quite so sure. We know that he's cheerful. We know that he's abstemious. We know that he is a rower. Was it suicide or has he been murdered? Tune in to part four as the mystery deepens.